You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. And I'm Andrew Cartmel. And Andrew, we bumped into each other at the XL event in London for the anniversary celebrations. How was your anniversary? Well, it was great because I've been invited there to do a commentary for a couple of episodes that I don't know if your listeners know, but I was the script editor during the Sylvester McCoy era. And they had a couple of episodes from our Dalek story, which in all modesty was a classic. And it was great to see it again. So I sat there with the director, Andrew Morgan, and we had a couple of uh, nice Doctor Who fans, Justin Johnson and Marcus, who were asking us questions about the episode. And the the guy who wrote it, Ben Aronovich, his son was there in the audience. So it was just, you know, it was a great experience, actually. And did you have a good weekend altogether? Were you just there on the Sunday? I was only there. They only invited me on the Sunday, JR. Oh, yeah. I was only there on the Sunday too. All the best people were there on the Sunday. You know what? One day was exhausting enough. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be there for three. Yeah, if you're working, I suppose. And actually, that's the funny thing about those things. Even if you're not working, they do tend to kind of take it out of you a bit because there's just so much going on. You know, you're constantly... Yeah, it's, it's green room overload, mate. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, the reason... The reason you've come in today is we were going to talk about, well, this is something that's come up quite a lot on this podcast, the Sylvester McCoy years. It's probably one of our favourite subjects, I'd say. That's nice. And well, it's one of those eras of the programme, well, you'll know better than anybody else, you'll know as well as anybody else, and all eras of the programme are like this, but they can tend to divide opinions a bit, don't they? But that's understandable, because um, I came in and Sylvester came in at the end of a very controversial period, and one in which the show was in decline. Yeah, absolutely. And sadly, when you did come in, and I mean, we'll talk about the stories and themes and things in a minute, but sadly, when you did come in, the B- the, you know, the BBC really weren't terribly helpful, not in the promotion or anything, were they? The BBC had always looked down on Doctor Who, but during the few years leading up to the point where I joined, uh, the relations between the BBC and Doctor Who had sunk to an all-time low. Yeah, yeah. Look, one of the... You came in in, well, 1986, I assume you'd have started working, and one of the first things on the table was the Pip and Jane Baker story, right? Yeah, the first first episode was more or less written when I arrived. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't have as much of a problem with that story as some people have. Some, some people love it, and that's great, but I don't. And if I'd had proper script editor autonomy, we wouldn't have gone ahead with that story, at least not in that form. No. Did you, did you get to spend a lot of time with Pip and Jane Baker? I sat down with them, uh, and we had lunch together, and we spent a lot of time talking about it, but we never made contact, you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It kind of, yeah, both sort of on different wavelengths, I guess. Absolutely. Which is a bit of a shame, because I, that is obviously 
the sort of least worthwhile of the three stories they did, of well, four stories, I suppose, if you count the last bit of the well, Trial of Time Lord. The Rani is a great creation, but I mm. didn't like Time and the Rani. I just, yeah, what can I say? I've got to be honest. It didn't work for me. I never would have done it the way that it was done. And uh, it still rankles now because it was the first story out of the gate. It was Sylvester's. You know, yeah. And it, I really think that it, it was a big mistake. It got things off on the wrong foot, really, didn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I suppose, actually, you know, when the series is coming back with a new actor as the Doctor and a sort of a new face, the new titles and the new music and everything else. And, well, I guess it's not like these days where you'd actually have a relaunch in inverted commas. But it was, to all intents and purposes, a relaunch. And a lot of people tuned in, were willing to give it a chance, and they saw that it was this very old (laughs) story, and they stopped giving it a chance. I got a phone call from an agent the following day after the first episode went out. She said, oh, we thought you were one of the good guys. And I I was just ashamed, frankly, because it it didn't represent where I wanted to go, and I had virtually nothing to do with that story. And, of course, It, it had your name on it, didn't it? Yes, in retrospect, the thing to have done would have been to insist that my name was taken off that, and I didn't have my name on any of the episodes until my stuff started to come on stream. Whether that would have been possible, I don't know, but that would have been, if it was possible, that would have been the smart move, but I didn't think of that till much later. And I guess at the time as well, you're talking about somebody who's come into the BBC and who doesn't have a great yeah. deal of experience. And just... I was I was a new boy, and these... Yeah. They were very experienced writers with, I don't know, what, 15, 20 years of experience behind them. So I wasn't in a position to dictate terms. But having said that, John, although John the producer sort of forced that story on me, he was later very helpful and very accommodating once he realized I knew what I was doing. And I think he realized that we'd moved in a different and better direction after time in the Rani. But by then, it was too late. That, That particular damage had been done. Here's a question then that's just sort of popped into my head. I don't know if it's something you've ever sat down and thought about, but this is something we've discussed once or twice. How would we have dealt with that regeneration, given that, you know, the way the series was being made in those days, nobody would have thought to not do the regeneration, like when Christopher Eccleston came in and they just started fresh with a new Doctor. But have you ever sat down and thought what you would have done to get through that regeneration with only access to Sylvester McCoy? Well, as you say, probably better not to have a regeneration, just to have Mm. the guy walk on. But it wasn't coming after 10 years off the air, the way Eccleston was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mm. it was coming after a season... So, and it was the tradition, so it had to be done. And, J&T and, would never have stood for it not being there, would he, to exactly. be honest? Yeah. But, frankly, I never thought about that in particular because it was part and parcel of that story. So, uh, you know, I, I think in story terms. So I, if I had a different opening episode for that season, I could come up with something, you know, to introduce the Doctor in terms of regeneration. But as far as I'm concerned, it's kind of super glued to the Pip and Jane script. Yeah. It is, actually, isn't it? It is just... It's an opening scene at the start that... Well, I was going to say that really has nothing to do with the rest of the story, but of course, the Seventh Doctor's amnesia. But, you know, you could have brought the amnesia in, in um, you know, in, in other ways. I stories where the Doctor's disorientated after mm. being regenerated. I mean, that was... One of the fundamental problems... I was talking to Eric Saywood, who was the script editor, who did the Colin Baker stories. Yeah. And one of the things they did was 
that after his regeneration, after Peter Davison turned into Colin Baker, the Colin Baker doctor uh, not only had a form of amnesia, he, he, you know, he also went around trying to kill the companion. He was sort of uh. um, he's undergoing a temporary dementia. Now that, on the face of it, that looks interesting because it gives you lots of drama, but there's lots of problems with that, not the least of which is that you've turned the hero of your show into kind of the villain of your show. And Eric said the problem he found with that is that having made, started the Doctor off on that foot of him being a very negative character, kind of aggressive, hostile, anti-hero, he said it was very hard to get him back on track as a likable character. So it was obvious <laughs> that Eric would, would have liked to have done that differently too. That's always been, I mean, your knowledge of Doctor Who's quite extensive now. I don't suppose it was then, but it, it is now. Yeah. yeah. But going back across all the regeneration stories, like you say, I've always had a bit of a problem with them making the Doctor too disoriented afterwards because it just, you need to see him sooner. You need to see what he's capable he's of. He's got to be back in action. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's get started. I, I think that's one of the things Stephen Moffat did really well in the 11th hour. He nodded to it, you know, the fact that the Doctor had just regenerated. He had him occasionally wobbly, but he was full and in that story. He was right in the thick of it, and he was being the Doctor throughout the whole episode. Yeah, you, do, you don't want to waste any time. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to. And speaking of Stephen Moffat, we were saying this just before we started recording. He's a bit of a Sylvester McCoy era fan, a bit of an Andrew Cartmel fan from what I gather. Well, so you say, and so I've heard from various places, which is great. I mean, I wasn't particularly aware of it because I haven't been closely scrutinising the show, but if that's so, that's lovely. Well, there are lots of nods in the show to those years, and of course, particularly the mop and the fez, which is a reference to Silver Nemesis. Well, that's great because I, I saw that fez at conventions for yonks, <laughs> and I didn't know that, so it's great. Now, every time I see... I gave my little nephew a Doctor Who magazine with a free fez on the front of Doctor Who Adventures. Right, right. yeah. So now I, I kind of feel responsible for that. It's great. And I didn't know that, so thanks for telling me that. You are responsible for that, absolutely. In fact, you were saying you've not had a chance to catch up with the anniversary episode yet. No, I wanted to see it in all its 3D glory on the big screen at the cinema. I thought it was going to be on for quite a while, but it seems to have only been on Saturday. Uh, and and Sunday, Monday. Of course, I was at mm. the Excel Centre, so yes, yeah. I, I'm sure it'll be shown again, but I, until I do see it, I'm a bit like the guy who doesn't want to hear the results of the football match. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, of course. Like in the likely lads. I'm sort of wandering around like that. Somebody's bound to spill the beans, but, but hope, let's not spill them just yet. Well, I shan't, keep, I shan't spoil it for you then. That's very good. But I will give you a little bit of a teaser, and this is just a personal opinion. But in that episode, Stephen Moffat does rather more with the concept of the program than you would generally expect. The Five Doctors, for instance. You must be aware of The Five Doctors, right? Yeah, that's the Peter Davison parody thing, isn't it? That, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. The, I mean, the original Five Doctors from 30 years ago, the sort yeah. of anniversary <laughs> from uh, 1983. But yeah. that's just like a... It's, Got five Doctors in, but it's basically a bog-standard Doctor Who story. It's even fairly traditional and old-fashioned. Was it Terrence Dix? Yeah, it was Terrence Dix. Oh, bless him. I like Terrence. I think he's great. Oh, yeah, you've got to love him. But he is pretty old-fashioned. He's pretty trad. But what Stephen Moffat did with The Day of the Doctor was something completely different. He's kind of... 
I won't tell you what he did, but he's kind of gone into the format of the program and he's tinkered with it in the special. And one of the things he's done, and this is just a personal opinion, this is just a connection I made, but one of the things he's done is, in a way, he's kind of made good on all the promises of the sort of McCoy Cartmel years that never came to fruition because you never got to do that season 27. Yeah, yeah. I think, in a way, he's almost dressed that. So that'll give you something to look out for when well, you're watching. I, I'm now really looking forward to seeing it. Mm. Yeah, he's a if very you, good writer, Steve. I, I think so. But you'll have to sort of get what I mean, because that's a very sort of left-field opinion I've got on it, I think. I've not seen anybody else mention it. Oh, interesting. Tantalising. Yeah, but in my head, that's definitely, definitely one of the things he was doing there. Well, he was hoping. <clears throat> Did, uh, when you saw the series come back then in 2005 with Rose and those early Russell T. Davis episodes, did you were you one of these people who thought, oh, that is a million miles away from the classic series? Or were no, you one no, of those... No. On the contrary, I, I knew that it was going to be a winner as soon as I heard that they'd cast Billy Piper as the companion because I thought, that's perfect. She mm. was just perfect. She had the right level of celebrity. She was obviously you know, going to be good on screen. I thought, ah, oh, yes perfect, smart move, and from that point on I was immediately in favour of what Russell was doing and sort of eagerly looking forward to it. In fact, it was the casting of Billy Piper against Christopher Eccleston that really intrigued me, because as soon as I saw those two names together, I thought, I can see what he wants to do with this. Well, Eccleston was an obvious bit of casting, because he'd been, he'd appeared in the, uh... Second Coming. The, that's exactly right, yeah, in Russell's earlier script. So I thought that was, that was a fairly obvious piece of casting, but the Billy Piper was just perfect. And I, th- and I thought, in a way, it was sort of like the sort of thing that John would have done, a bit of stunt casting, you know? John Nathan Turner. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of similarities between the two, in many ways, actually. What was yeah. John? Yeah, yeah, I think so, absolutely. Well, you, the big difference is that John really had no story sense, and Russell, yeah. one of the tele- television's master writers, isn't it? Absolutely, but in kind of, but in the wider sense of what they do with the program or how they um, sell the program. Yes, they both ha- had an understanding of publicity, didn't they? Absolutely, yeah. And Russell, kn- he knew that if you stick a name that people recognise on the screen, you're going to get people tuning in out of curiosity who may not otherwise tune in. And yeah, that's well, not to the detriment of the programme. No, I, I loved the whole concept of Billy Piper as a companion, and I very rapidly came to feel that she was definitely cut from the same cloth as Ace. Yeah, absolutely. Did you feel, because this has often been said now, but probably not so much at the time, but that Rose felt like a natural follow-on from Survival? You know what, That's people have been saying that, is uh, it really only in the last year or two that that's become so clear to me, but I think that's very true. Because they both have that urban council estate kind of environment, don't they? Yeah, with a... Uh, with, and of course, yes, and sort of the other thing as well is, it's not just the environment, but it's how the central character is the companion, and it's how the story revolves. It's like the plot is almost the ephemera that revolves around the characters in the centre. Well, that's... A natural for Russell because he came from the background of writing soap operas, which are all about characters, aren't they? There's really not much yeah. plot. It's just character interaction. And of course, survival. In fact, that whole season 26 thing where you put Ace right in at the centre of it, 
And the stories in season 26, we're doing this backwards almost, aren't we? <laughs> the stories in this season... This is some travel show. <laughs> yeah, exactly, so why not? But the stories in season 26 are so much more about Ace and her relationship with the Doctor and her relationship with the plots than they are strictly about just the plots themselves, aren't they? Yes, and it's possible to go too far in that direction. I sometimes wonder if we went a little too overboard on making it all about Ace, because it is, after all, the Doctor's show. I don't think you did, you know. Well, I that's think, good. <laughs> that's well, yeah, I think perhaps, uh, you know, my experience of watching it at the time was I was thinking that, but then at the time I was 20, and when you're 20, you're not necessarily in love with the programme anymore anyway, are you? You know, that's your... That's the phase you go through when you're kind of a bit sniffy about it anyway. At least I was. Sorry, go on. Disillusioned. Yeah, yeah. But then that was because of, you know, the era that had preceded yours, really. But my... I think when I watched season 26, one of the things I thought about it was that it was too much about Ace. But I think that's... But I think that's perhaps because it was such a short season, because the seasons were so short then. Oh, yeah, we're down to 13 episodes. Mm, I think if you'd have had more room... 14, yeah. sorry. Yeah, sorry, 14. Yeah. But if you'd have had a bit more space with those seasons, it probably wouldn't have been quite so obvious. Yeah, and also it's kind of you swing back and forth. You you start off and you have a companion who's completely a cipher, who's nothing, who's cardboard cut out, and then you start building them up and you go too far the other way. You know, I think in the next season we probably would have got the balance absolutely right. In fact, Ace would have disappeared after two stories in the next season, or well, I don't... nothing was cast in iron. But yeah, that would have been the season where we would have had a transition story, where Ace handed over to a new companion. Where that story would have fallen in the season is uh, anybody's guess. But ideally, uh, yeah, probably probably early in the season because you want to let's see. In Dragonfire, that's the last story of, this, of that season where we handed over from Bonnie to Sophie, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, so you could do it any way you wanted. So it might have been the last story of the season, could have been the first, but who knows. But we'd have seen... <clears throat> I was going to say we'd have seen the end of Ace then. That doesn't sound very nice, but... But at least that story would have had a a full stop on it, because I guess, in a way, even though some of the companions previously have had dreadful exits, it might be even worse to sort of, you know, have that leave that character hanging knowing that the story's not quite finished, you know what I mean? Yeah, but you also, it doesn't have to be the end. You can just bring the ca- character back again. You mm. know, you, they can recur. It's not a problem. You know, I saw Sylvester and Sophie on the repeat of the celebrities, the pointless celebrities they did. Did you see that? No. <laughs> oh, they Sounds did it. like fun. Oh, well. Well, I've never... Well, I've never properly met either of them. I said hello to both of them. You must have known them pretty well back in the 1980s. But it struck me seeing them together on television, not in character, just being themselves, that they make a really sort of odd, eccentric, but at the same time, completely loving and very comfortable with each other pair. Very they're great double act. Yeah, yeah. But they're like, but they're both like properly eccentric. Do you know what I mean? Not faux eccentric, but well, you... I, I would have said so more so. But yeah. Yeah, I think he brings it out of Sophie, though. I definitely yeah. got that impression. Yeah, I always remember when my girlfriend saw the, the um, 
the rushes we had of the the, the um, when we had the various actors who were trying out for the role of the Doctor, and we had the various screen tests. She said something like, uh, "Oh, that guy's a nutcase. I like him." <laughs> that was, yeah, that's kind of my reaction too. So, what was he like then on the set? Do you, I mean, were you out filming with them very often? Oh yeah. Yeah, I know Silver's great, but we were all under a lot of pressure. We yeah. always wished we had a little more time to do things proper. That's always the trouble, though, isn't it, in television? I suppose they... Well, no, but particularly with Doctor Who. Yeah, Hill, yeah. There was, there was totally trying to get a pint out of a half-pint mug in those days. And, of course, that's the other thing. Unlike most series, where you've got the same actors on the same sets from one episode to another... With Doctor Who, you're basically starting a new series every three or four weeks. Yeah, I, that, that's, there's some beauty in that, though, because it gives you lots of freedom. Oh, yeah, yeah. But from a production point of view and from an actor's point of view, it must be hellish. It's A bit of a killer, but then mm. you know, we were doing a series that was only half as long as what would have been done uh, earlier. I mean, Eric yeah. Sayward was doing twice as many episodes, wasn't Very he? Very true. Would you have preferred to do more? I wish I had done more, but it was a killer just doing those 14. Oh, really? And you'd have perhaps also written as well, if that had been the case. Yeah, yeah, that was my one regret, that I didn't write a load of them. And I suppose we've seen afterwards, actually, what you may have written, what you, you know, what you might have wanted to write about. Yeah. Were there any of those stories that you did? Um... Were there any other stories that you did that were more ideas that you brought to the writer than that the writer had brought to you and that therefore might have been ones that you would have written yourself? Well, most of the stories were developed in a dialogue with the writer. Right. I, I can answer that quite specifically. Paradise Towers, for instance, Stephen White came in and said, what about a story set in a high-rise block that's falling apart? In fact, he, he invoked the name of J.G. Ballard's high-rise. And right. I, I instantly said yes. You've got it. We were off to the races. Graham Curry came in and we went through ages and ages and ages of discussing various ideas and I kept saying no. Then one day he finally came in the office and he flopped down in a chair and he said, what about a planet where it's a crime to be unhappy? And I said, yes, perfect, great. So although the in that case the story arose in discussion with me, it didn't come out of my head, it totally came out of Graham's, I don't think any of them I could really, none of the, the basic stories... Maybe a bit of silver nemesis? I don't know. I, I'm trying to find out what turned the writers on and what they liked writing, what their strengths were, and encouraging them to come up with something like that. And then sort of bring that into the Doctor Who universe, as it were. That was the hardest thing, was getting them to write something that was recognisably Doctor Who. Not Ben. Ben could instantly do that, Ben Aronovich. Uh, yeah. He was a big science fiction fan, and he also found it very easy to wrap his head around Doctor Who. He, he had that from the off. He sent in a spec script, which we didn't use, but he's already had a feel for it. And Mark Platt, again, uh, unlike Ben, Mark Platt was a huge Doctor Who fan who was completely saturated with the mythos of the show, with the canon of the show. But most fans, that hobbles them, it cripples them, it, it, it prevents them from writing a great story. But in Mark's case, he, he could write it, and he wrote beautifully. He totally had a format. He just had it. And I think Briggs acquired it. Uh, we had a lot of trouble getting to the point of Dragonfire, and Dragonfire had its problems. But by the time he wrote The Curse of Fenric, I think he was up to speed on Doctor Who, absolutely. Oh, totally. In fact, I, I think Dragonfire is a bit of an underrated story. I rather like that. Well, you've got problems with it. You've got some very 
the, the, the design itself is not bad at all. I mean, John Asbridge was a magnificent designer, and I believe that was John's work. But the lighting is terrible. Some yeah, of the, some yeah. of the costumes are terrible. And you've still got Bonnie, and with all respect, Bon the character they'd fashioned for Bonnie was a dead end because she she was such a a kind of passive victim of a character, you know? Mm. And you couldn't do a lot until you got somebody like Ace who was proactive. I hate that word, but, it, you know, somebody who could kick it arse. <laughs> yeah. So you wanted somebody like that. So these things all hampered Dragon Ball, and there was some dreadful special effects. But Briggs's writing was brilliant, and his ideas were brilliant. Well, and yeah, just, yeah. Just to give you one example, that, that creature, the dragon, who was actually... A pretty cool design. It, it was very much in the wake of H.R. Giger's designs for Alien. So it was, it was an intelligent and literate piece of special effects design. But the whole point of that that suit was that it is supposed to be a very tall, very skinny guy. Just like if you know that it, like in, the Alien, it, in yeah. Alien, they, they cast this guy who's like six foot six or something. And there was actually a guy in the special effects department who's very tall and very skinny. And this, the suit was designed for him. But when they cast the show. They they gave the part to some mate of of John's, I believe. You know, oh, right. who needed work, and we all understand that. But the guy was short and he was pot bellied, and so suddenly, you know, that the the creature just looks a bit of a joke. So gotcha. those sort of compromises. Come, and of course, the other thing back. is, if those sets had been shadowy, it would have looked so much so it. much more effective. They, they wouldn't have looked like sets. They, mm. they were beautiful design. Asbridge was a, a great designer. He he worked on. Uh, Delta, obviously Delta and the Bannermen because they were the same production block and if you look at the spaceships in Delta they're marvellous and he did wonderful work but there's no design that is so great that it, that it, it can survive being really unsympathetically lit mm. and those, you just shine a bright light on a, on a set and it looks like a set if, as you say you light it sympathetically it would have been spooky and mag magnificent and magical and I have my um disagreements with the director on that because there's a famous scene where Sylvester's left hanging oh yeah 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 for no apparent reason well that in the script that makes perfect sense but the way it's shot it doesn't make any sense at all so I'm afraid the guy who has to carry the can for that is the director Chris Clough obviously yeah I mean Chris is a nice guy and God knows he's a successful producer on things like Skins since Doctor Who he's had a meteoric career but his work as a director on Doctor Who, certainly in that instance, you know, it created problems for us. What can I say? I think, actually, you've got to be honest about this and say that the problems with Delta and the Bannermen are probably in the direction as well. I think so, anyway, because I love the script of Delta and the Bannermen. I just think, as a production, it doesn't quite come together. Yeah, well, Malcolm Cole, I love it. He's a terrific writer. But John felt the script's especially episode two, tended to be too humorous, so we did a major rewrite in episode two. And if there's, if you wanted to take the devil's advocate point of view on that, um, you could argue that, that Delta is a little bit light and humorous. But on the other hand, the Bannermen are great villains, aren't they? And oh, yeah, yeah. There's Don uh, Henderson as Gavrock. Yes. He's just great. And, and there's, there's this wonderful scene where he's... Um, he, he's sitting on a... It's basically a scene from a Western because he's kind of sitting there on a porch with a gun on his lap. And he's he said, oh, I, I want something to eat. Get me some... Get, get me a... 
I want to be eating raw meat. So they got him this piece of smoked salmon that he could tear away at. But he wanted to have that thing that he was this kind of savage creature. And he also asked for his hands, his fingers to be webbed. He was totally into the role. <laughs> Nobody, you see, you want that from an actor. And he was great. I, I loved him. So although I started out saying that, that you could argue that Delta was a little bit too light and comical, it had some fantastic dark moments. Yeah, and I, I love Malcolm's script. He's a cool cat. There, so there, there were problems. And I think... The problem throughout with Doctor Who is that there was always a tendency, because John Nathan Turner, who was a lovely man, but was a lovely big gay camp man, yeah. he always, there was always a tendency for the show, like, the, like water running downhill, to, to move in the direction of campness. So if you had any elements, like, you know, like we had Ken Dodd in that, and, and you know, you get Ken Dodd, and he's wearing a big spangly suit, and suddenly you're in danger of Camp City. That there's always that that was always that danger in, in Doctor Who during John's era. And yeah, actually, that Ken Dodd sequence is one of the bits that works the best. You know, well, in the finished I think production, it's quite, it's quite darkly lit, though, isn't it? I think it's quite. Yeah, dark. Uh, maybe that helps. But I think he plays it really nicely as well. Actually, well, I don't, no, no problem with Ken Dodd. I thought mm. he was a real trooper, but you know, I could live without a sequined costume any day. Yeah, yeah, but that was always the thing. I mean, this was a problem right throughout the 80s, really, is, you know, it was the 80s. That was part of it, um, but there's no forgiving what they did to Colin Baker's Doctor. I, I like Colin no. a great deal, I think he could have made it a wonderful Doctor, but when you gave him that costume, it was like tying an anchor around the guy's neck. It really didn't help. In fact, I think the... Well, I, you know, I hate to say this, one writer bitching about another I'm not is not what I'm here to try and get you to do, but I, you know, Colin's Doctor was not very sympathetically treated in the writing either, which didn't help. Yeah, when I talked to Eric about that, I suddenly, he, when he explained to me, it was like I was saying that you start off with the Doctor in, in, as a kind of maniac and quite dangerous, and then once you start like that, you can't instantly change it. So he, he said, he explained that it took several stories just to get to the point where he was sympathetic. It's so like I trying to turn a train around on the tracks, isn't exactly it? exactly right. So you see, I began to understand how Eric had been painted into a corner. Because I've got a lot of time for Eric, because he was very much a disciple of Robert Holmes, who I still think yeah. is the greatest Doctor Who writer of all time. So Eric had all the right intentions, and he had this skill, and, and his ideas were all in the right place. But he was sort of lumbered, in the same way that poor Colin was lumbered with a dodgy costume. Um, Eric had been uh, sort of lumbered with some dodgy concepts mm. at the start, uh, when, they, when they launched it. So um, I really felt that the Colin Baker doctor got off on, on the wrong foot, despite, you know, you had great talent there, you, but you needed to free up Eric, and you needed to free up Colin and let them do what they did best, and, and that wasn't what happened to them. So what was your experience of starting with Sylvester? Because like we we were saying earlier, you were kind of lumbered with time in the Rani. It didn't go as far, nearly, as um, Colin Baker did in his first story. But did you also feel at the same time that you needed to make a progression? And did you feel it was... Well, what I, I, there were some good things about time in the Rani. The, the uh, design by, a, I can't remember the guy's name, but it might have been Jeff Milne. He'd just won a BAFTA for The History Man, which was a... Um, a play about Kafka, and he did his designs were stunning. Like th those dragon heads and stuff. Also, they had a great cast, and some of the costumes were really good. But you know, I I disowned the scripts for that. So there were some good elements of that story. But when I'd realised that I could not get the scripts, 
that I basically had no input in those scripts. I washed my hands of it, gave it up as a lost cause, and concentrated on the other stories, because you you just move on. So while they were shooting um, Time of the Rani, I was busy working with Stephen White, cooking up Paradise Towers, working with Malcolm on Delta, and working with Briggsy on Dragonfire. So I just moved on quickly, and and also I wouldn't have had time to sit around crying. We just had to keep going. But did you feel it took a long time to kind of get Sylvester's doctor where you wanted him? Did you well, have an idea from the didn't start? I didn't originally know exactly where I wanted him. I just knew that he was a, he was a, um, a foxy trickster type, you know? Mm. I mean, my first impression of him, uh, this was in my diary, is that he was a kind of hybrid of Bugs Bunny and the actor Richard Burton. Because if you know Richard Burton, he has this yeah. wonderful, deep, mellifluous, Celtic, Welsh voice, yeah, and and Sylve's got this wonderful, deep, mellifluous Scottish voice, <laughs> and and with great power. If you've ever heard him shout, he has this great, profound stage shout, and yet he's got this. He's like Bugs Bunny in that he's like an animated cartoon, and he's mischievous. So I I saw that that was inherent in Sylvester, and of course I wanted to use that in the show. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, of course, the progression is clear for everybody to see across those three series. You know, though, I've got a confession to make, because, you know, the general... That doesn't sound good. <laughs> oh, it's not a bad confession. I don't think it's anything that will upset you. But the general consensus is that those three seasons get better as they go along. Well, we're learning. We, we were all learning what we were doing. Well, here's my confession, then. I actually, in some kind of strange, perverse way, prefer the first one. Uh, any particular, which is your favourite story then in the first one? Well, I probably Paradise Towers, but Paradise, well, all three of those, Paradise, Delta and Abandonment and Dragonfire, I do have a lot of love and a lot of time for all three of those stories. I kind of like the slightly uncooked feel about them because you can see this great imagination and this great intellect fighting to make its way into the series. Because I don't think there was a great amount of imagination or intellect for sort of two or three years before that. And you can see them arrive and they're uncooked. And they're almost, it's almost like looking at the raw ingredients of a meal and not being quite sure what the meal's going to be, but knowing it's going to be magnificent. Oh, so you, you, you like the kind of unshaped raw energy of it. That's interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. I can see that. Yeah, well, I just, I just, when I look at. Those stories, I'm just too preoccupied with the defects. Like in Paradise Towers, there's the cleaners, the robotic cleaners that don't mm. fast enough to be menacing. You have Richard Briers going well over the top, despite being one of the finest actors of his time. You know, and, and <laughs> the director not reining him in, all kinds of stuff. But I yeah, love that you know, performance, though, you know. I think it's hilarious. And what about Clive Merrison? We had such wonderful oh, cast. Yeah. I, I just wish that we had done more with him. I, I love his work in Riley Ace's Spies and on the radio. He's a great, great actor. So, yeah, they, they were, uh, Stephen's scripts were terrific. Malcolm and, and Ian delivered the goods. So there's, I'm glad you like that series. Uh, it's just the one thing I'd say that really handicaps us there is that we're still, in some sense, doing a Colin Baker-style doc. Yeah. We've, got, we've got Colin's companion. We've got Bonnie. Whereas it would have been nice to start off with Ace and then we could have arrived at a new formula more quickly. I do think, actually... um, Okay, two things about that. One, I think, yes, Bonnie Langford and her character, you know, the character is... Well, the thing about Mel, I mean, Bonnie was lovely. The thing is, 
well, she came with this baggage, you know, I'll scream and scream and scream. So that, Absolutely. that was a problem. She had an awful costume, that stripy costume in, in Time of the Army. Uh, but on top of that, she, that, her character Mel had been conceived as a scientist. She was supposed to be a computer scientist. And, yeah, and nothing's yeah. ever really done with that. And she just ended up as being a screamer. So they'd never developed a character for her properly. And we, I suppose we could have reinvented the character, but it was made more sense. New companion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, though, that in Delta and the Bannermen, she's absolutely wonderful because that story seems, in some kind of a way, the perfect story for Bonnie Langford it as a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did, and that's one of the reasons, actually, why I like Delta and the Bannermen so much, because it all feels natural. Integrated. Absolutely, yeah. So, then Ace comes along, and you get into season 25, and okay, here's not a confession but my other my other perspective is i like the oddball ones and my favorite story probably of the entire decade and i've said this before so i'm not saying this just for your benefit the happiness patrol i absolutely adore that story <laughs> the happiness patrol is an amazing story because it's finally after being vilified for decades it's finally being reevaluated and appreciated the first that i was aware of that was a few years ago at easter <laughs> the Easter sermon by the Archbishop of Canterbury cited the Happiness Patrol. Really? See, there was a Doctor Who story about a planet on which it was a crime to be unhappy, and I dropped my knitting, I can tell you. <laughs> it was fantastic. It wasn't the current incumbent, it was the Archbishop before that, but check it out. I just, I'd never understood why Doctor Who fandom wasn't, you know, the Bush Telegraph wasn't uh, vibrating with his news, but it, it did happen, so I thought, yeah, okay that story has gone into the culture, you know, it's gone yeah, out yeah. and it's, it's, it's escaped into the wild. And it's been re-evaluated uh, all, all over the place. And then there was that crazy thing where I was on Newsnight yes. <laughs> defending myself against accusations of trying to overthrow the government, mostly via um, Helen A in, in The Happiness Patrol. But as I was saying earlier, Graham came up with this idea, you know, a planet where it's a crime to be unhappy, perfect Doctor Who idea. And he wrote it brilliantly. There, there were, again, we had the problem of overlit sets. What we did on that one mm. is we tried, we set the whole story at night thinking that would force them. And by them, I actually just mean that the, the guy who yeah. was in charge of the lighting, who, who wasn't really a drama lighting cameraman. He, he was more the sort of guy you'd have for lighting something like, you know, in all compassion. He would be better off lighting things like snooker. You know, you, you need a subtle, nuanced. Right, um, low-key lighting style. We didn't have that. So that, you know, th there are flaws with that. And again, I don't feel Chris Clough's direction was subtle or nuanced, to use those words again, enough for the story. But the, the script is great. There's a great cast, an extraordinary cast, and the concept's really strong. And Dominic Glenn's music is wonderful. I mean, it's great. He's got he, he, great use of the, of the harmonica and the blues, for instance. And the design, again, is fantastic. With John Asbridge again. Yeah. I love the city streets and that. They've had a lot of, they, they've had a lot of flack over the years for not being inverted commas realistic. No, but it was supposed to be like a kind of. It's like a Kafka thing. New Orleans kind of mm. vibe, you know, with the balconies and stuff. Yeah. And properly lit. It would have worked a treat, but it wasn't properly lit, man. It was just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that you can see the potential in there, because that's you know that's great. I there's something about that story that. And this is what I particularly, I mean, apart from everything else, the acting is, you know, there aren't words to describe the acting in that story. It's just some of the best performances Doctor Who's ever had. 
But the thing that really gets me about that is that you will occasionally get stories, uh, you know, in Doctor Who, where there's a metaphor at play, but on the surface, the story's done in a realistic fashion. But the thing that gets me about the Happiness Patrol is not only is the metaphor at play sort of in the subtext, but the metaphor is also kind of finding voice in the text as well. It's like the whole production feels like the metaphor brought to life. Do you know what I mean? It's got well, that... we, we didn't need to bury it in the subtext, is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying it has this slightly surreal quality that makes the whole production... You know, so, uh, sometimes if you've got a subtext, then when you've got the text on top of it, you can si kind of see the two fighting for supremacy. But with the Happiness Patrol, it almost feels like the entire production is in sympathy to what the writer's trying to say. So it feels to me like a really complete production, and that's why I like it so much, because it just... There's nothing about it that I would want to change. Everything feels perfect, honed. Do you know what I mean? Well, for a start, we, we have, have, as you say, wonderful performances. Sheila Hancock, unbeatable. Yeah. <laughs> and we had made a, a sort of very feeble attempt to just disguise the fact that it was it was based on that Helen A was obviously a take on Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. She she <laughs> saw that right away and she sank her teeth into it and boy did she go for it. It was brilliant. And it was great because it sort of gave gave a shape to the polemic. And the happiness uh, the happiness, the ha the uh, candy man. Oh the can the thing about the candy man is he was just a wonderful character because he was he was conceived as a kind of hideous state torture, like somebody you might get in Argentina or somewhere like mm. that, or, you know, some repressive state. But he also had this kind of, as his name suggests, this kind of blithe component of, 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 of you know, uh, nursery sweetness about him. And, of course, he wasn't human. He was this creature made of candy. Now, he was yeah. conceived in the script in a completely different way from the kind of um, Percy Bassett, is that what he was called? Or yeah, Bertie Bassett. Bertie yeah. Bassett, all, all sorts of man. He was never... Um, written like that. We never visualised him being like that, but when I saw it, I thought, I thought two things. I thought, A, this is great, and B, <laughs> I hope we don't get sued by the licorice all sorts of people. But yeah, I thought it was a terrific piece of design, and he, he's got this fantastic voice, because he's got this really, you know, he says these marvellous things. He has some great lines of candy, man. I think Graham did a marvellous, marvellous job with him. I like, there was one point where he just where he answers the phone, right? And he picks the phone and says, in a very business-like way, he says, Candyman, you know, and that was the sort of thing that Graham came up with. And it's just, you know, there aren't many Doctor Who villains who are like that. It's just, I think it's beautifully written, beautifully, beautiful, satirical, darkly comic writing. Graham Curry wrote a masterpiece. And I think, actually, it is very much to the production's benefit that they did decide to go down that route with the Candyman because I, I just feel it's perfect in the. Story. I think it looks, I think it looks great, but I, I would never have gone that way because of fear of violating the yeah. <laughs> but they, it obviously came off so fantastic. Fifi was a great piece of design. I've said this before, but she doesn't move very well, but she no. looks great. And oh, the pipe people, the little pipe people. That was one of the. Because I think by that time, you know, people have this um, sort of impression of Doctor Who as being a scary program. Yeah. Something that's supposed to frighten the kids. And of course, that's not not nearly always true but the pipe people in and this is before season 26 when it goes back to being a bit scary again but the pipe people are kind of spooky and there's something really kind of spooky about when they first turn up 
Well, that's good because they turn out to be sympathetic. So I always like those mm. reversals. Absolutely, yeah. But it's almost as if a little bit. Well, definitely, it's not almost as if it is. In season 25, it is definitely, you can see Doctor Who finding its feet again and getting back to being what it was, in a way. Well, you say that, JR, but as soon as the fans, and by the fans, I mean the, the sort of ones who were the sort of DWB fans mm. who were very angry at John, as soon as they heard that there was a story called The Happiness Patrol, before they knew anything else about it, they were baying for blood. And, and the, the thing about the Happiness Patrol is, I was talking about camp earlier. The Happiness Patrol is sort of permissibly camp because it needs that kind of super yeah. surface to conceal the evil. And, but of course, at the time, a lot of people didn't see beyond the surface. No, no, I know. And you've still got those people around these days as well, of course. Well, I, in some ways I sympathise with them because they might be looking at what I, I feel are the design flaws and the lighting flaws, which, which do look naff, unintentionally naff. Oh, no, no, I meant you've got people talking in exactly the same way as they talked about Doctor Who then, about Doctor Who now. Oh, the current Doctor, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, the, I, think, I think once the 1980s happened, I think that just became a standard part of sort of Doctor Who fandom in a way. You know, the series goes through so many different kinds of iterations where it does so many different things. And people seem to forget that part of the process of the program, part of the process of keeping it alive, is changing what it is and what it does every now and again. But people want it to be the way it was when they first got into it, and anything else is not up to snuff, really. Yeah, yeah. well, John used to say that memory lies, didn't he? Yeah, and, you know, he was absolutely right. I, You know, people have gone back to that statement and said, oh, he talks nonsense, and, you know, then he puts on the five faces of Doctor Who just to prove how he's talking nonsense. But no, I think John Nathan Turner had a point when he said that. In the same way, I think Mary Whitehouse had a point when she complained about some of the things they were doing in the mid-70s, because I do think the programme went a bit too far on some occasions then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and indeed, Vengeance on Varos, which is a story by a writer I, yeah. I really admire. Um, I, I think Philip Martin did, did a fantastic job, but I didn't really feel it was Doctor Who. I thought it was this hard-hitting, dark science fiction story, which wasn't quite Doctor Who. Yeah, I could understand. So I, I've never agreed with Mary Whitehouse in my life, but I could understand some of the objections. And when the Doctor says, "Guy drops into an acid bath," and the Doctor says, "Don't mind if I don't join you," um, it doesn't feel right, does it? It felt it would be right for James Bond, it'd be right for Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it ain't quite right for for Doctor Who. No, absolutely not. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. That story to me. It feels almost it's like... It's a little too nasty. It's a little too nasty in the wrong yeah. kind of way. It but feels like having your cake and eating it. Do you know see, what I mean? Cause it it wants because it's about video nasties, yeah. Mm. It, yeah, it wants to be a video nasty as well as being about video but, nasties. But you, you see, this isn't a case of people getting it wrong. That They achieved exactly what they set out to do. But what I felt by the time they'd achieved that, they'd come up with something that wasn't Doctor Who anymore. That, that's my argument against it. I, I, I thought it was very good for what it was, but I didn't think it was Doctor Who because it had stepped across some kind of boundary. Yeah, yeah. And the great thing about when you came in and Sylvester came in and the whole show changes and becomes much lighter on its feet and you're sort of, the sort of darker stories 
in your sort of three years are things well remembrance of the daleks is one and that's very light on its feet and there's nothing gratuitous or nasty in it whatsoever and yet it deals with issues every bit as much as vengeance on varus does oh yeah it deals with racism fascism um mm. yeah the daleks yeah. <laughs> it's going upstairs it's it but it's a great story i'm really proud of that one and it's the, the way they've digitally cleaned it up it's looking fantastic these days too it's a timeless classic, really. Yeah, the odd wobbly Dalek aside. I know, that kind of spoils it. But it was the programme was being made so cheaply by that point. I mean, the, the all-on-video look doesn't help. But you can kind of... I mean, I think the guys who were working on it did some absolutely astonishing things with the money they had. Oh, but, yeah. you, but you can tell, looking back now, that they didn't have the money, you know, on a relative... In relative terms. We just didn't have the resources. No, exactly. And I mean, you look at what the programme is now, and it looks so much better, so much different. But actually, the writing's not that much different. If you'd had the money then that they've got now, you would have come up with something that would have lived up to, you know, the programme as it is today. And sometimes it wasn't just money. It was just having the right people on your team who would do the right right. Yeah. And you did seem to, have, I, you know, you did seem to have people by that point who were doing it for the love of the program. Certainly, in in the special effects department, there were, there was notably people like Mike Tucker and Lindsay McGowan, mm. who were terrifically skilled at their job and loved the show and went that extra mile. They they were great guys. Right. One of the reasons that we've gathered here today is to talk about the reissued version of Script Doctor. Oh, I'm so, so pleased and proud about that. Because what happened was, during my years on Doctor Who, I kept a diary. I mean, there was a period in my life when I kept a diary which predated Who by a few years and ceased in the course of making Doctor Who because I just didn't have the time to keep a diary anymore. Right. Well, I suddenly realised that I, that I had the material there to write a book about my time on Doctor Who. And I actually had, you know, it was like, I'd carried a camera and a tape recorder with me in the sense that this diary had recorded these things, and it was great. I I'd, I'd wrote down what people actually said. I wrote down all these little anecdotes. I described things, and I turned it into a book, which was published um, in 2005. And that was Hearst, wasn't it, when it came out originally? No, it was Reynolds and Hearn. Oh, right, okay. I'd got the wrong end of the stick on that one. Yeah, Hearst and Hearn. I think that's the confusion. Yeah, mm. so Reynolds and Hearn... Uh, the book eventually went out of print. They went into receivership. And so the book was in limbo for a number of years. But it's, I've always been most proud of it because it's the book that I carried off most successfully because when I read it, it really is a time capsule. It really yeah. is being there again. And then I was trying to find a way to get it out again, perhaps just as an e-book. And the guys at Milk Publishing, uh, Matthew West, who's yeah. great, he's a great bloke. <laughs> he's so he's, funny, but he's heart's yeah, in he's the right real, place. He's got a real cutting sense of humour, and he got in touch with me. I just, I just mentioned on Twitter something about wanting to bring it back into print, and he tweeted me in the modern fashion. And next thing you know, we've got this wonderful edition. The original edition, the original printing had eight pages of colour photos. The new one's got 32. It's really lavish. And they've, not only have they done a paperback, they've done this... I'm, I'm a complete train spotter for these kind of things. They've done this limited edition hardcover with all these extra little 
uh, gifts with it. And it's just fantastic. And if you want one of those, act quickly. I think there's about 15 copies, one or five copies left. Oh, I ordered mine the day they announced it. it it's really worth having. And I'm not saying that to sell it because they're all sold pretty much now. But if you're into that kind of thing, go for it because it's gorgeous. And I've never had a book done in uh, hardcover before, let alone a beautiful limited edition like that. It is gorgeous, that. absolutely gorgeous. And if you're interested in what it was like making television in that era, it's you, you know, it goes beyond Doctor Who because it's a description of what the BBC was like and hanging out in the BBC bar with Robbie Coltrane and Catherine Cusack. It's just, mm. it was a wonderful, it just in a Proustian, Madeline dipping way, it just brings it all back to me. It's, I'm very proud of that book and, and anybody who's got the least interest in that era in television or that period of Doctor Who should check it out. Uh, yeah, and if you don't have the money, just borrow a copy from the library, but do read the book, it's terrific. Well, I have to say, I missed it the first time around. I'm not really sure how. I don't know why I would have missed it the it first time around. It wasn't widely available, you know. It, yeah. was just, it was only available for a little while. And then it was, uh, after it went out of print, it was selling for £200 on Amazon. Oh, so. really? Wow. I remember it coming out, and remember thinking to myself, you know, that's on my to-do list. And then I just kind of never saw it, I think. And it was one of those things where it just kind of goes out of your head. It was the days before when the internet was in its infancy. Yeah. It's in that way. And now it's, it's definitely out there. The paperback will be available for anybody who wants it. So, yeah, do check it out. And, and it's it's gorgeous. It's got a beautiful Steve Cook cover photos. And it's and it's the guys at Milk have done these wonderful little design tricks in it. It's just great. They're amazing. I have got a little confession to make about that book as well. The hardback edition, you know, the um, cover with the script in the pocket. Exactly. I was there when they took that picture. I didn't know what earth they were doing. (laughs) (laughs) Was that that in Swansea, was it? Yeah, that's right. I was outside. Regenerations, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was outside. They came out to do it. And I'm sort of like, oh, hi, Matt. How, Rob? And there was somebody I don't know, and I was about to say, oh, what are you guys up to? And then all of a sudden, the camera's out, and they're taking all these pictures, and I'm like, what on earth is going on here? Yeah, but you you realise now, it all all makes sense now, doesn't it, Joe? And I also feel that I was therefore present at a little bit of history. Well, it's just such a cool design for the cover. I'm I'm dead chuffed, I really am. I've never had a book that's been made to look so beautiful. And speaking of which, and you know, I've only the copies only arrived this week, and of course we were in London last weekend, and since then I've been in an absolute mad fury to get this piece of work done that we shan't go into, but that people will know about very shortly. So I've barely had chance to look at it, but I've read the introduction and dipped into it. And oh yeah, new, new introduction by Stephen Moffat, new afterwards by by Sophie Aldred. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And it it looks great, and, you know, it's... You know what I always do when I get a book? If I'm not going to be able to sit down and read it absolutely immediately, I will open it up at some random page and read, like, two paragraphs so that I can get a sense of the tone and the quality of the writing. Yeah, well, I tremble to ask what two paragraphs you found. Oh, I'm not sure. It was, um... Were they fun? Uh, they were. There was an awful lot of blue language, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was... Very advisory. Well, I, did, I, did, I think a it was a documentary account of what people actually said at the time. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think it, w- it was in season 24. I think it must have been Delta and Abanaman, actually. I'm pretty sure it was during Delta and Abanaman. But the point I was going to make was, it's written in a really nice, easy-to-read style Thank that you. makes it look as if, you know, getting... Th- 
you know, going through it is just going to fly by. That's what I like is like a conversational tone. So that it almost feels as if you're not actually reading, but you're just yeah. actually listening to somebody talking to you. That's what we aspire to. Absolutely. Mm. Thanks. And then, of course, there's an advert in the back for what was originally known as Through Time. Through, through Time, which was my history of the show, in which I, I dipped into key episodes and, and wrote about the different eras of the show. And we're going to do a new version, a new deluxe version of that, because obviously there's a lot more to write. That book ended just as Russell's series was beginning so there's a great deal more to be discussed but also i I, when i wrote that i wasn't um on speaking terms with a lot of the people i am now like i'm mates with donald tosh chris bidmead um, oh donald tosh is such a lovely bloke great um terence dix so so i know four of the the classic era script editors and I've been interviewing them and I, I've now got insights into the different eras of the show. Before what I was doing is I was watching the show and commenting on it but now I've been talking to the people who are making those shows. So this is all by way of a long-winded way of saying that it, we're going to refresh that book and make it much richer with a lot of more background detail. One of the things we're going to do is just include um, all of the script editors' notes that we can get a hold of. I wrote notes for prospective writers, telling them how to approach the show, and so did the other script editors. So one right. of our plans is to include those, because it shows an interesting snapshot of the different archaeological layers of the show, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that'll be... Oh, well, that'll be absolutely essential, I would have thought, for any self-respecting Doctor Who fan. So, of course, I've, I've got to finish rewriting it, but that'll be available in the new year, so that should be good. Oh, excellent. Well, that's great news. Well, well, Andrew, thank you for coming on and talking My about pleasure. all this. Thank you. Yeah, it has been, even though this is over the Skype connection, it's been a real pleasure because in London we only got a chance to just quickly say hello and shake hands. But it has been a genuine pleasure to sort of meet, you know, somebody whose work I've got so much time for. Oh, thank you, mate. Very kind of you. Oh, that's, you're welcome. It's, you know, the pleasure's all mine. Speak soon. Take care. Good night. Cheers. Okay, and I am still here, and... Oh, are you laughing at me, Mark? I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks That never much. happens normally. Yeah, well, Mark's with me as well. Hello, Hello, Mark. Hello, JR. We've never done this before, done a podcast in two parts. But you know what? We are getting quite a few emails at the moment, which is nice. People are writing in. Yeah, we really appreciate it. But it's not all that nice because people are writing in when they listen to bits of our podcast that they don't agree with us and want to put us right. What you're saying is that you don't want people to disagree with you. I don't. Well, it's not so much that I don't want people to disagree with me. I just don't just really understand how it happens. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I thought, seeing as the conversation with Andrew Cartmel was overdone with in just less than an hour, that it was time to add another. 15 minutes or whatever and get through some of the emails so they don't start building up again as they have done once or twice in the past (laughs) so mark are you happy to go through some emails with me yes let's do this okay here we call this our little feedback section yes yes do you want to try and give it a name um feedback okay let's call this section feedback there you go, it's even got a theme. <clears throat> yes, well. Feedback. I'm sure it'll catch on. 
Yeah. Okay. Hello, blue boxers. Hello. Looking forward. <clears throat> Looking forward to listening to podcast eighty-three. But just watched Name of the Doctor and Day of the Doctor as a double bill, and Ooh. thought of a question for you. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is interesting. The Doctor says that the name you choose is like a promise. So why not each of you consider what name you would choose and what promise you would be making? I have to confess that I can't remember what promise I was making when I chose my name. I'm pretty sure booze was involved. <laughs> Keep up the good work, guys. Weird Bean. Mm -hmm. I think we should do that. I should think I should put that to all four of us and we should all kind... We should all come up with a name for ourselves that contains some kind of a promise. It worries me what sort of name Lee's going to come up with. Yeah. I think, Mr. Cock Ram, that we've already got one for you. What do you think, Mark? What's that, Mr. South Hall? <laughs> okay. I think um, we should call you Neville. And that your promise should be to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world during the 1980s. Uh, one of the best Everton goalkeepers in the world, anyway. Um, and here's another email. Moving rapidly along. For many of us 30 or 40-somethings, classic Doctor Who is ultimately about moments to remember. Being scared of the Dalek voices, the dolls that came alive, the giant spiders, or the one with the maggots. The regeneration of one Doctor to another forever etched into our memories. Moments we'll never forget. As I sat in the XL arena on the 23rd of November, hearing the screams and shouts of those around me, I realised that this anniversary episode was busy delivering moments yet again, and in spades. While I recall the sea devils coming out of the sea, the little, the little lads sitting behind me will remember the 13 doctors surrounding Gallifrey. I'll look back on the Morbius monster, just as the children to my right are absorbing that great Capaldi cameo. And together, young and old, we gasped at the sight and sound of the unique Tom Baker. That moment is for all of us, and we'll take it to the grave together. So cheers to the good Doctor and all the moments that have been prepared for. Just a few short weeks until a few more. <clears throat> P.S. Wouldn't it have been just great if, instead of Clara as the schoolteacher, which is somewhat implausible anyway, it was Cole Hill's very own Ian Chesterton. Oh, and I so wish they had glued the Night of the Doctor on as the pre-credit sequence, making it even more multi-doctory and shockingly good. That would but have been cool. <laughs> but you can't have everything. And that is from The Great Intelligence. Which is quite bizarre, really, because I'd have thought The Great Intelligence would yeah, have been Yeah, they would have so wanted... Um... The yeah. name of the Doctor, wouldn't they, really? Well, you'd have pretty much not been too happy with all those nice Doctory moments. Mm. I would have thought, but then, you know, great intelligence, you can't really account for it, can you? Great intelligence, that's not something we're used to on this podcast, is it? It's something I'm not used to <laughs> on this podcast, Mark. I don't know what yeah. else he's trying to say yeah, there. Fair right. comment. I don't think the Mark the uh, Paul McGann thing would have worked at the start, though. I mean, it would have bumped it up to nearer the hour and a half. Well, I would have wanted it up, but then I'm a sad fanboy. But I guess but for the average would, punter... It would have been an extra seven minutes on the start before mm -hmm. you get into the story. It would have been too much, really. It was perfect as it was. Yeah. It'll be on the DVD. Yes. Or, in fact, it is on the DVD, because the DVD mm -hmm. came out already, didn't it? Yes. So there you go. I did enjoy Night of the Doctor. You know, one thing that was funny was people were saying how popular it was because mm -hmm. it had something like 
two and a half million hits on the website or whatever. And people were saying, well, if two and a half million people have watched it, that's a good reason, if any, there was, if ever there was one. Well, I probably watched it about a... 20 times, so... Well, that's what I was just about to say. <laughs> you know, people are using this figure uh, saying, you know, it should be a Paul McGann series because two and a half million people want to watch it. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if Doctor Who was on on a Saturday night and it got two and a half million viewers, A, that would be reason enough to cancel it mm. as it was. But B, if those two and a half million viewers were actually less than half a million viewers just clicking repeat over and over <laughs> again on the video, that's really not going to help at all, is it? Well, you get no argument from me if you wanted to put more McGann on, on TV. But um, True yeah. enough, I'm just saying that argument by itself is not the argument. As it? much as it pains me to say it, I think you may have a point. Mm. Right, uh, gentlemen. Once again, we see the disastrous results of a Blue Box podcast listener entrusting his scintillating wit to JR to read out. Oh dear. Mm. My two submissions for the new Blue Box podcast theme music, and that's our competition, by the way, in oh, case yes. everybody's forgot. If you would like, yeah, if you'd like to be the uh, the uh, arranger of our theme music for you know the next time we change it, which will be the first episode in January. Uh, send us about a minute's worth of rearranged Doctor Who theme to blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk and we'll choose the best one and it will become our theme. Go crazy with it. Do yeah, whatever you Well, as long as it's recognisably the Doctor Who theme. And don't do what this person did, as I will continue. My two submissions for the theme music, paying tribute both to JR's public face and the one he shows to Mark's ah, kids. Yes. He means Lee's kids, actually. But Yeah, that'd be a bit most, early days for that. <laughs> we're most certainly not Postman Pat and I am a cider drinker, as JR <laughs> thought. They were Postman Pat and I've got a brand new Combine Harvester. Uh, as if I'd be so rude as to suggest that better. JR... As if I'd be so rude as to suggest that JR boozes in front of Mark's kids. Or even Lee's kids. No, I was referring to JR's recently revealed role as a farmer stereotype in their eyes, while everyone <laughs> else calls him JR. Do Lee's kids call him Ooh-R? I think we should be told. Do you know what happened there, Mark? What Before happened? I carry on and read the rest of it. He'd sent me these two, and I could remember the second one was uh, a Wurzel song. Well, and you know, you weren't far off. Yeah, you know, I just couldn't remember. Which, because I'm not exactly steeped in the Wurzels, you know. Well, that's not what I've heard. So I just had to rack my brain quickly as I was reading his emails out to try and remember which song it was, and I got it wrong. Anyway, he carries on. This is Doc Hume, by the way, I as gathered. if anybody needs telling. Regarding Tom Baker's appearance at the end of Day of the Doctor, we shouldn't sully a moment of such utter purity with questions about how could he be there. If truth is beauty, then beauty is truth. Tom's cameo was the most beautiful moment of the whole anniversary, so therefore it must be true. So, nah. <laughs> Incidentally, I've just thought of the perfect solution to the question which has vexed Doctor Who fans for 50 years. Mm. If Popstrel Scylla Black was the Billy Piper of the 1960s, then which companion would have benefited most from her being cast in the role? Would she have made a better Morton Dill than Peter Purvis? Would the Chumbleys have sounded even cooler if Vicky had said it in a northern accent? Well, the answer is simple. If Scylla had been cast in the role of Clara 
then when she jumps into the Doctor's time stream in name of the Doctor, she could have simultaneously become every single companion throughout the series. This may seem impossible, but, as the Doctor explains in Blink, People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a Laura-Laura, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. All the best, Doc Whom, a.k.a. Castellan Spandex, Chancellor Flavorsome, Coordinator Engelbert, and Cardinal Brouhaha. P.S. Regarding Southall's review of Adventure in Time and Space on the Starburst website, LOL. Did Starburst have Mount write his view as an alternative? There should be a flowchart. Did you enjoy an adventure in space and time? Yes, it made me feel all warm inside. Proceed to pull Mount's review. No, it was filled with inaccurate characterization. Proceed to JR. Harsh but fair. Oh, now I want to. He's getting a bit rude calling you Southall and Paul Mount. Mount? Yeah. Don't call him well, whom. Yeah, well. And you know, I'm curious as to what Paul Mount thought of Day of the Doctor. Hmm. Uh, because I don't think we're going to find out until the next issue of Starburst hits the shelves. That's going to be a doozy by the sound of it. Oh, yeah, of course. Because I interviewed Phil Morris and we have that in the next issue. Issue hmm. 396 on sale December 20th. Phil Morris, quite a in-depth interview with the man who found the missing episodes. Certainly the most in-depth interview I think he's given so far. I shall be heading to WH Smith to pick up my copy. Hey. Right, that's the advert over and done with. Here's, <laughs> here's uh, actually, funnily enough, because I, I have a regular column in the magazine for a couple of pages as well, mm. And funnily enough, I'd written about Phil Morris and the missing episodes in the column this month before I uh, So it's a Phil Morris loving. It is. It's going to be about maybe six or seven pages of Phil Morris in there. Oh, come on. The guy deserves it. Absolutely, he does, mm. yes. I think that's one issue of Starburst magazine that's going to be poured over, though, isn't it? Mm, definitely. Anyway, Chris Vorjak... The docudrama was a strange beast, wasn't it? I'm not sure if I'm truly capable of being objective about it. My mother watched it with me, and although she is not a fan, she did say that she enjoyed it. Then again, she did fall asleep during the last ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike you, I do feel that although David Bradley was effective as the real-life Hartnell, Reese Shearsmith was actually closer to the second Doctor in his portrayal than Bradley was to the first Doctor. Bradley captured none of the humour and chirpy eccentricity of the First Doctor, making him seem far more doer and stiff than he really was. Schmeersis, Shearsmith's <laughs> problem, besides looking nothing like Troughton, was that he seemed to be attempting a Second Doctor impression rather than a Patrick Troughton impression. There is a difference. Mm -hmm. And as a result, Shearsmith came off as far too mannered compared to Brad Bradley's subtle Hartnell portrayal in that scene. And that's true. And, you know, I think I heard or saw it pointed out somewhere else as well that, you know, when Reese Shearsmith comes in, mm. it was just, oh, it was just, uh, he just didn't have the weight. I mean, no. that's pretty much what I said, but he came in and he didn't have the weight. And the way they put it was because you hadn't followed his story across the mm. last 90 yeah. minutes. He couldn't come in as a character and have as much weight mm -hmm. as David Bradley as Hartnell. It's a tough gig. I mean, mm. but yeah, he, um, the whole 
Yeah. No. <laughs> well, you know, you can't win them all, can you? Yeah, uh, what was the whole thing with dressing him up as wee Jimmy Cranky? I just didn't get it. I think that's the second time you've made that joke on this yeah. podcast, Mark. Let's hope everybody who was listening last week isn't listening this week, and everybody who's listening this week wasn't <laughs> listening last week. Matt Barber says, Hi, JR, and the Blue Box Podcast. Oh, yeah, thanks, Matt. Just a quick one. Listening back, I've heard your theory repeated a few times that the original pronunciation of Scaro may have been intended to be Scaro to tie in with Terry Nation's penchant for onomatopoeic planet names. My challenge to this theory is that surely Scaro suggests scarred planet, evocative of the ravaged apocalyptic landscape we saw in the dead planet. Ooh, is this not? Point. Well, he says, is this not more likely? On the whole, Nation's 1960s names have seemed to reference a physical aspect of the planet, Marinus, Iridius, etc., mm -hmm. not an emotion-based aspect, with the possible exception of Desperus, and any others I've forgotten. Kemble. I think... Mm, oh, what's the emotion suggested there, Mark? I don't know, it sounds more like a sort of food processor, doesn't it? Aye. By the okay. Kemble 3000. That's probably a David Whittaker thing, then, mm, in that maybe. case. Anyway, Matt continues, I think Scarred Planet is much more representative of the story in the place we encounter in that first Dalek story than Scary Planet. Anyway, almost run out of podcasts to listen to now. Please do more frequent broadcasts, <laughs> otherwise I'll be forced to listen to inferior ones. Lots of love, Matt. That's not true at all, actually. There are several superior ones out there that he could listen. This is true. No, no, come on, we do one every week. That's true, not bad, is it, it? Mark? What? It's not true. There are no more superior ones oh. than us. Oh. I mean, no, no, that's right. Mark, yeah. I was throwing you a line there and you went completely in the on uh, wrong direction. Uh, oh, well, honesty uh, is the best policy. Yeah, are you saying I was being dishonest when I said we were the best podcast? <clears throat> well, it's a, it's a point of view. Actually, there are several great podcasts out there which I'm not going to name. On account of the fact that, why would I want to advertise them? I really like the memory cheats. Okay, and in response to... <laughs> okay, here's two things about what Matt says. Yes. First of all... He's right. <clears throat> no, well, I don't know, he may well be right. I'm only... My suggestion that maybe it had been originally intended to be pronounced Scaro rather than Scaro, that's just, you know, me thinking aloud, really. I think it makes for an interesting conversation, but I think I... At the risk of upsetting you, I think I agree more with Matt's idea. Well, let me counter it and see if you agree more with him then. Go on then. Well, in the first instance, he comes to refer to other planets by physical aspects, Marinus and Iridius, etc., mm. after the fact. Scarrow's the first time he does it. Yeah. So, when somebody's setting a precedent, the precedent itself may set in afterwards. You can't say, oh, he names Scaro after a physical aspect because that's what he does, if that's what he does hmm. isn't something that he does do until afterwards. At the time he named Scaro, he had no precedent for naming planets after their physical aspects. So in the first instance, it may not be necessarily a physical aspect that he's alluding to. And just to string that thought along a little bit further... The point with Terry Nation's story was kind of that he was coming in and being scary, doing a scary story. So why wouldn't he name the planet Scaro? Would he not use a C instead of a K? 
Well, he may do. He maybe wrote it down with a C and then thought it looked better with a K. Mm. Anyway, uh, but my my stronger counter-argument against Matt is that Scarred Planet sounds far, far, far too poetic to have come <laughs> from the pen of the man who named the other planets in his Doctor Who stories Wet World and Dry World. <laughs> so surely it is far more hey, likely... Hey, come on, this is the be... same guy that came up with MacGyver, so... <laughs> it's far more likely to be called Scary World, surely, than mm. Scarred World. It just is far too intellectual for Terry Nation, surely. Sadly, Mr. Nation is no longer with us, so I guess we'll never find out. Yeah, okay. How did my counter-argument go, Mark? Oh, it was, it was pretty decent, but I still go with Matt. Oh, shut up. <laughs> uh, oh, one more email, then. And this is from Al No. Oh, hello, Al. He says, Dear and the boys in JR, Sorry about vanishing there. I got lost discussing identity with Allo Poirot, if that's how you spell it. We're all the same fan consciousness in here, experiencing itself through a unique prismic filter, so it's hard to tell what's going on most of the time. Also, he adds, I'm writing this on my phone, still in green ink, which isn't conducive to joined up thinks. And also, I'm still on the train, and we all know what that's like. Ahem. Thanks for making a damp December commute less dreary with your Day of the Doctor episode. Aww. Yep. Yep, he says. I think that explains Metabilis Gate quite nicely. Some quick points before I'm beastly to Gatis. Ooh. Forget the end of time, parts one and two. How does this affect Utopia? I try to forget the end of time, parts one and two. There are some mm. nice, bit, nice bits in it, but as a whole, it's not great. But, you know, I brought this up with Andrew Cartmel earlier in the same podcast, so mm -hmm. I've no need to tell the listener what I said to Andrew Cartmel. And so I shan't bother telling you either. But what do you think of what I said to Andrew Cartmel earlier in this podcast, Mark? Well, if I'd heard it, I would probably be able to tell you. But um, sadly, I'm not privy to that information. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what I told him. Um, because I'm not sure if I mentioned this when we reviewed Day of the Doctor, but mm. it was certainly in my mind when I was watching it, is that in some ways I feel also that Stephen Moffat was paying a certain amount of lip service to what Andrew Cartmel was doing with the Doctor in seasons 25 and 26 as well. Mm. You know, when all the... And at the time and afterwards we all thought, oh, he probably went way too far and nobody had an idea of what was going on and they cut some of the dialogue out anyway, mm -hmm. so, you know, none of it was really very clear. But Andrew Cartmel was trying to put the mystery back into the character of the Doctor by making it out that he was somehow more than just a normal Time Lord. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think by itself, just doing that, until you've got an explanation for why he's more than just a normal Time Lord, that's an explanation you can live with. But, on the other hand, by Stephen Moffat doing what he did in The Day of the Doctor, mm. that kind of, you know, that kind of finishes off that square. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and also he had that whole period during Season 7 of trying to erase the Doctor's past, um, sort of taking him out of history, which, again, is trying to bring back a little bit of the mystery so he's not this sort of all-conquering god who wanders into the story each time. 
Oh, absolutely. I just think that Stephen Moffat takes actually quite a lot of inspiration from the Sylvester McCoy years. And I just think that as part of his thinking during the day of the Doctor, you know, as part of his thinking for how he was rounding everything off, Mm -hmm. you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's and all that, of a lot of continuity that nobody was really expecting him to address, I just think somewhere in the back of his mind was, and now we can wrap up the whole you know, why is the Doctor more than just an ordinary Time Lord from the 1980s as well? Mm-hmm. I think um, once the Time of the Doctor is out of the way, I think we're going to end up with a completely blank canvas and a, a completely fresh start. Well, I'm going to say this again now. I said this way back last Christmas, and nothing I've seen since then has led me to believe that I'm going to be wrong. Not necessarily that I'm going to be right, but, you know, I still think there's a possibility we'll see the great intelligence at Christmas mm-hmm. and that the whole arc will be a great intelligence arc. But I'll come back to that point in a second because I've got something to add to that. Mm. But the other thing is, I still think there's a possibility that the 11th Doctor will end up being, you know, somehow his entire four years mm. will end up being taken out of the Doctor's time stream. Mm-hmm. You know, somehow, and this will be why we've had all the forgetting and remembering and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. And certainly, if that happens, it makes the day of the Doctor even more poignant mm. that the Doctor who kind of arranged all this and saved Gallifrey is one that's going to be completely taken out of the time stream. I don't know. I'm not saying that necessarily will happen, but this is Stephen Moffat. And I suspect that's the kind of thing he might want to do. And how more heartbreaking can you make a regeneration well, than if he's... the Doctor you're losing is also being lost forever from the time stream? In the new series, when Donna left, that was absolutely mm. heartbreaking. And I think if that was the way it was going to pan out, I think this could even top it. Oh, absolutely. Imagine doing what you did to Donna with the mm. Doctor, but taking him out of it all completely. Oh, anyway, I'll come back to the other point after mm-hmm. I've finished Al's email because he carries on. Don't look a gift Zygon in the mouth. Apart from the teeth, they don't make sense. I scrawled that with a sad face, partly because I really want there to be a corner of some foreign field, Chepstow, in which a horse stands patiently wearing an octopus at a rakish angle, <laughs> and partly because I sense a lot of expensive plot hole covering minisodes in the future. Also, I never noticed how much Zygon resembles Cylon until recently. And speaking of Battlestar Galactica, the search for home plot is a nice way of setting up a story arc for the Doctor Who reboot that Mm -hmm. Mr. Moffat's about to launch. I'm joking, of course. Hats off to the chap. Anyway, there's an awful lot of chalk that can be mined in Coal Hill. See what you did there? Uh Chalk? I'm going to miss my stop if I'm worried about Gatiss, so I'll save that for another time. Yours, synchronistically, Al. There you go, that's Al No. Up to the usual standard. Yeah, I don't quite like the way he brings up the whole Battlestar Galactica thing because mm-hmm. that's a nice point. Yeah, I never really, thought of that before. No. Um, I spoke about that a little bit last time. I will say one thing. We know that all the Brady's in the Christmas special. Right? You, did, you, you, you knew yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah, I'd seen that somewhere, yeah. Right, all the Brady's in the Christmas special. Mm. And I believe it has been said... And this is in the Radio Times as well as other mm. places, so I'm assuming you know this is true. That she plays quote, and this isn't a huge spoiler, a face from the Doctor's past unquote. Now, 
Everybody's assuming that to mean she'll be a female Time Lord, either Susan or Romana. But or you know the Rani, don't forget the Rani. Or the Rani, or the Rani. <laughs> but you know what I'm thinking? Go on. I'm thinking that the Day of the Doctor was taking place almost simultaneously with the events of the End of Time, and that we didn't get to see the Master in a TARDIS in any of his appearances during the Russell T. Davis era, so maybe that's something that Stephen Moffat, you know, that's a piece of continuity that Stephen Moffat would also like to address and, mm. inverted commas, put right, giving the master his TARDIS back. But we also know how Stephen Moffat likes to push the envelope. But that he's also a fanboy, so he's a bit careful about how he pushes the envelope and that he doesn't try and push it too far. So this whole business about could the Doctor regenerate into a woman... What better way to test the water than by having the Master regenerate into a woman first, which thus sets the scene for the Doctor to be able to do it later without people getting quite so agitated about the concept if it's already been seen to happen on screen. Therefore, I suggest to you, and I've read no spoilers whatsoever, I know the spoilers mm. are out there and I've not read them, I'd like to suggest to you that all of Brady is playing the Master. I would like to suggest to you that Gallifrey Base would probably go into meltdown if that happened. And right, Even more so. reason to do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's not going to stop Stephen Moffat, is it? No, hasn't before. No. No, I think it would be an interesting twist. Um, I don't know. I just feel a bit uncomfortable. with. I know the precedent's always already been set with some of the, uh, the previous plot points and what have you, but maybe I'm just old-fashioned. I, I like the idea of the Doctor being a male character. Well, I'm not saying that this sets it up so that the next time the Doctor can definitely change into a woman. Mm. I'm just saying that this allows for the possibility in a way that a line of dialogue doesn't, or not as strongly. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Just because somebody said something doesn't mean that they have to do it. But if you've actually seen it on screen, that kind of opens the door that bit further, doesn't mm. it? I think it would make for an interesting story. I'd love to see the Master as a woman, actually. I think I've said this before in the past. I, in fact, I think I first said it years ago. If you're going to do the Doctor as a woman, do another Time Lord swapping genders first to make it more plausible for the viewer. I think there's a lot of fan fiction out there that um, that mines that quite heavily, I would imagine. Well, I think the next Cygnus Alpha book should be The Adventures of Gender-Swapping Time Lords. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think we should go, because this is supposed to be a 15-minute add-on segment at the oh, end, yes. and it's getting towards half an hour. All right, so, well, fair enough then. Yeah, so I think next time you, me, Simon and Lee, hopefully, will assemble to do, I don't know, a sort of Christmas party episode, a bit like our happy birthday episode. Well, we'll just look back over the year. And I think we'll have two or three weeks to have gained a little perspective on the anniversary as well. So mm. I suspect I expect what we'll do is like a year in review type episode in anticipation of the Christmas special, yes? So we're going to break out the mould wine and the mince pies. The mouldy wine? Mould wine. Okay. That sounds like a good idea to me. Or probably mould cider for you, seeing as you're... Uh... The <laughs> <laughs> Until then, I was JR. And I was Mark. And we'll speak again soon.
Well, you'll have seen it, the mop and the fez thing. That all comes out of Silver Nemesis. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah, I'd never made that, never made that connection. 